Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, the global biopharmaceutical company behind a variety of innovative cancer medicines with a pipeline of investigational therapies. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about surgical options for skin cancer with Dr. Kelly Olino. Dr. Olino is an assistant professor of surgical oncology, and Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. So Kelly, maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit more about melanoma, what it is, how common it is, kind of who gets it and why we should care. Well, melanoma is a type of skin cancer. So it's it's a subtype. And unfortunately, it's more common than we would like it to be. So for men, it's the fifth most common cancer. In women, it's actually the sixth most. Thankfully, many patients are diagnosed at an early stage due to efforts of their primary care doctors and dermatologists. But when it becomes an advanced stage, it becomes much more difficult to treat. And therefore, it's the deadliest type of skin cancer that we actually treat. So let's talk about how can we detect it early. So what does melanoma look like? What should we be watching for? So the classical teaching has to do with the alphabet, where people classically talk about the A, B, C, D, E, and then the F, or if it kind of just looks funny or it feels funny. So anytime that you have a mole, many of us are born with them. Many of us will acquire them or, you know, things that look like freckles. So anything that doesn't look symmetric, if it bleeds, it has different colors to it, or just anything that really changes over time. And that's really the big key is to just, you know, keep an eye on these things. And if you're not sure, ask someone. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we're now uh, in in the winter months. Certainly, you know, we talk about melanoma in the summer months and we talk about using sunscreen and so on. Can people still get melanoma in the winter months? They can. Um, and a lot of it will be dependent upon many times people's partners may notice something that's very, very common. Hairdressers, there's actually special programs actually for cosmetologists or people who do hair to say, huh, you know, that looks a little funny because none of us actually examine our scalps. And there's also melanomas that can happen underneath our fingernails. And those are actually much more common in people who are Asian or African-American, and that can happen really at any time. So it's just a matter of in the summertime, more people have more skin exposed. So more people are looking to say, huh, have you noticed that? Mm -hmm. And so I guess one of the key messages is, you know, if you have moles, it doesn't matter whether it's spring, summer, fall, or winter, you should be keeping an eye on these things and looking for that ABCD. Is it asymmetric? You know, are the borders irregular? Is there color changes or has it changed at all? Uh, is it, you know, getting larger in terms of diameter uh, and, and so on um, so that you really can bring this to your doctor's attention? Now, when you do bring it to your doctor's attention, what should they expect in terms of how how is melanoma worked up? So the most common way that it's worked up 
for the typical person is actually by the use of a biopsy, where someone will sample a portion of the skin. Um, it can be almost like a scraping, but kind of a deep scrape. Or, you know, you can use a little device that makes like a little punch, almost like a hole puncher, that then you examine that under the microscope and get information. And so if you're told that this is melanoma, I guess part of it depends on its stage, because you said that some melanomas are picked up early, uh, when treatment is easier, more effective, others are picked up late when there may be fewer uh, options. So tell us about the difference between early and late. Tell us about how these things are staged that kind of sets a framework of how they're treated. Well, the thing that I find that most patients are surprised about, when we talk about staging for melanoma, again, we usually begin with the biopsy. And when I tell them, oh, you know, this is less than a millimeter thick, or if it's two millimeter or even thicker than that, many patients don't understand. And they say, wow, well, that's this is all good. It's so tiny because people have it in their mind. A lot of other cancers, they're talking about big, big masses. Melanoma likes to spread through to the lymph nodes, um, which are little centers, almost kind of like transportation hubs on the subway, where our immune system is. So even when things are just, you know, very, very um, small in terms of we're talking millimeters or fractions of millimeters, they still have the potential to spread not only to these lymph nodes, these, these immune trafficking centers, but also to different organs like the brain or the lung or the liver. And that risk is really in proportion to how thick the melanoma is. And so give us a sense of how thick is thick and how thick is not so thick. So thin people will put a range of 1 to 1.2 millimeters when we talk about that. And that's kind of how we've grouped our clinical trials when we've studied it. Anything above 1.2 to about 3 millimeters, we consider that kind of in the middle. Anything greater than 3 millimeters, those are the patients we're the most worried about. And so is your treatment plan really dictated based on that thickness? So for many patients, it's one of the most important factors that we take into account. So, for example, if you had someone who came in with something that was about four millimeters before going straight to surgery, in about one to two out of 10 people, it may have already spread. And that's important information when you're making a holistic treatment plan. So in that regard, and those patients who are high risk with these thicker ones, we would go straight towards seeing, well, gosh, has this spread somewhere else? For ones that are intermediate, then we look more towards what's the most likely first stop, which would be the lymph nodes. And we have a discussion about sampling those. So, so let's take this in kind of chunks. So the thick melanomas, those that are more than three millimeters thick, somebody goes, they see a mole, they've heard us here on Yale Cancer Center Answers, they went to their primary care doctor or their dermatologist, they got the punch biopsy, it came back, melanoma, and lo and behold, it was three or four millimeters thick. And they remember that you said that that was thick and you'd be worried about distance spread in 10 to 20 percent of those patients. How exactly do you check for that distance spread? And if there is distance spread, what happens then? So the 
for let's say for example four millimeters that that keeps that actually has some of the best support for checking early. Um, the places where it will spread would be the brain, and we have to do an MRI for that. CAT scans aren't very good at looking for melanoma in the brain. And then other people would get either something called a PET scan, um, which is a special type of scan where abnormal cells pick up more sugar, and we see them more active on the scans. And that commonly gives us a very good idea about whether or not something has spread. But we're always limited by how much our scans can tell us. So even if those are negative, it doesn't mean that there may not be something floating in the bloodstream that we just haven't been able to detect yet, which is why we follow these patients so very closely. And so if you do find that it has spread somewhere else, the PET scan lights up, then what? So if this were 10 years ago, the conversation would be entirely different. Um, But We really have had major advances in two fields. One are in checking mutations in tumors, and we actually have some good agents for those specific types of mutations or changes in those tumors. And we also have utilized new medicines that actually have your immune system, which we call immunotherapy. And for melanoma, we've had some of the best successes in that field for any cancer. And so so you'd be checking for these mutations and kind of using targeted, personalized medicine-type approaches or immunotherapy. But are those approaches only if there's distant metastatic spread, or do you use them also in the thinner melanomas or the intermediate thickness melanomas or the melanomas that haven't spread to distant organs yet, maybe are just in a lymph node or maybe not even in a lymph node? So that's a great question, and that's actually an area of active clinical investigation. So there are patients who have something thick where you check the lymph node and it's not in the lymph node, and you say, gosh, you know, I can't believe it wasn't there. And we say, these patients are at such high risk. What do we do with them? Or we have patients whose melanomas maybe are a little bit thinner, and they have something at a very small deposit in the lymph node. And right now, we don't have a great way to predict who's going to benefit. So that's the topic of some clinical trials that are going on across the country. To see whether these immunotherapies and these targeted therapies that have worked in metastatic settings with spread all over the body might be able to work um, in in lesser stages. Correct. And not be toxic, which is an important thing that we always have to weigh. There's a if there was no toxicity, we would say, wonderful, let's use these on everyone. But we have to be cautious. You know, these are powerful medications. You know, Kelly, that's a Great point, because I think that when we talk about immunotherapy, and we've talked a lot about immunotherapy on this show, um, people talk about it like harnessing your immune system. And I think some people in our audience may think, well, if it's your immune system that's just, you know, overpowering this cancer, it must be non-toxic. Tell us a little bit about the toxicity um, associated with immunotherapy that makes you kind of not use it necessarily on everyone. So the first approved immunotherapy dates back um, to the 80s and 90s, and that's something called IL-2. And you had to be actually an inpatient in a specialized intensive care unit. And that was the first real treatment that we had where you were cured or you got very, very sick and you weren't cured. When people talk about immunotherapy in, you know, over the last five years, we talk about two major targets on T-cells. Some of the side effects are 
you know, damage to the colon. Um, and initially, when these were first being used, we didn't know how to turn off the immune system. Now we know that people can get treated with steroids or other treatments. The other areas that are affected commonly are, is something called your pituitary gland, which helps to control hormones from the brain. And that's with one of the agents, it's more common than the others. The thyroid gland is also a common target of having disease. And there's a couple of other sites, including the lung, but those are a little bit less common. Um, what we do know, it's, a, it's always a, a, a double-edged sword sometimes, you, when you see patients who have toxicities, many times those are the same people who are responding to the treatment. But like I said, we're just gotten a whole lot better at managing it and making it much safer than what it was even five years ago. So, so great work on the horizon uh, in terms of using these therapies, potentially even for the intermediate and thinner melanomas. So, so let's turn to those intermediate ones. Um, you know, these are 1.2 to 3 millimeters. You don't really think that this is spread anywhere else in the body. But you said that you would check the first draining lymph nodes. Tell us about that. So... Don Morton, um, a number of years ago, um, pioneered a, a technique where we use dyes, um, like a tattoo dye that's blue, as well as a, a radioactive dye. And we actually have a special probe that measures where did the dye go. And what we do is they're called sentinel nodes because what we say is, well, if the cancer were to have spread from the area in and around where we injected, where would be the first place that they would go? Where's the first stop? We then selectively remove that lymph node and look at it under the microscope and say, did it spread or not? And that gives us important information after an operation to tell the patients, well, this is what we expect based upon the information that we have. So we can check those first draining lymph nodes. We do the same thing in breast cancer. We want to learn a lot more about melanoma on today's show, but today we have to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about surgical options for skin cancer and melanoma with my guest, Dr. Kelly Olino. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a global science-led biopharmaceutical business committed to bringing to market innovative oncology medicines that address unmet needs for people living with cancer. More at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about genetic testing, which can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Patients that are considered at risk receive genetic counseling and testing so informed medical decisions can be based on their own personal risk assessment. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers. Interdisciplinary teams include geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together to provide risk assessment and steps to prevent the development of cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. 
This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Kelly Olino. We're talking about surgical options for skin cancer and melanoma. And right before the break, Kelly did such a fabulous job laying out for us how melanoma is actually staged. Kind of the thinner melanomas, the intermediate thickness melanomas, the thicker melanomas. The thicker ones are really the ones where we worry about distant metastatic spread and where targeted therapies and immunotherapies have really found their home. But as we look at the intermediate uh, thickness uh, melanomas, Kelly, you started talking about sentinel node biopsy, so actually checking those first draining lymph nodes to see whether the cancer spread there. So if it spread there, then what? Well, in the last year, there have been two major trials that have actually changed how we manage this. If this was two years ago, I would have said, well, we remove all of the other lymph nodes, and that gives us more information, and that would determine whether or not you would get any further treatment. These two trials that were done across the United States and Europe, however, showed that patients don't benefit by living longer or living longer without melanoma. So at that point now, again, we're almost not in not necessarily starting again, but we have more answers to solve because at this point, we have to base all of our treatment decisions based upon just that node sampling without having any further information. And again, this is an area that's under active investigation and patients should really be prepared for a very thoughtful conversation in the clinic when we kind of weigh pluses, minuses, and then how we follow people now with ultrasound um, in the areas where those lymph nodes were removed to try and detect any changes early. And the management really is dependent upon some of the factors under the microscope, but also importantly, the people that we're taking care of, you know, asking people to come in and getting surveillance every four months. For some people, that's, you know, burdensome or they don't have access to centers that are capable of doing that. So all of these things now have to be taken into account. So it becomes a very personalized decision for everyone. So I want to unpack that a little bit further. It sounds like in melanoma, like in many cancers, for example, in breast cancer, we're doing less. So you check that first draining lymph node. Historically, if it was positive, you'd take out all of the other lymph nodes because you'd say, well, you know, if it went to the first lymph node, it might have gone to the second or the third or the 17th or the 25th. Um, But now what you're finding is that you can actually spare patients the morbidity, that lymphedema that everybody is worried about, um, by not removing those extra lymph nodes. But now you've only got that first draining lymph node. So if you've got an intermediate thickness melanoma and that first draining lymph node has cancer, Tell me more about this personalized approach that you take. Like, let's say somebody says, I have no problem coming in for surveillance. Um, You can ultrasound my armpit or my groin or wherever this melanoma went to. Um, What happens with the melanoma itself uh, in the skin? Um, Was that removed? Um, What happens in terms of systemic therapy? Are these people given chemo? Are they given immunotherapy? Are they given targeted therapies? And is there any role for radiation or is radiation really verboten in the setting of melanoma given the fact that 
the sun is radiation, and that's how many people get melanoma. Well, we recommend almost undoubtedly removing the primary because if those grow, they'll cause symptoms, they can bleed, they make people terribly uncomfortable. And usually the side effects of removing a melanoma in the skin, some of them can be quite big, but something we can get patients through. As far as getting further therapy, again, we weigh the benefits for that particular patient versus the toxicity, but we don't have an algorithm that we can use because the old one that we had is now obsolete. Mm. And so that's why it's very, very important. So every time that we have these patients, and in many institutions, what we'll do is we will sit down with our tumor board. And a tumor board is full of experts in medical oncology, dermatology, radiation oncology. And we all sit down together and make a very personal decision on a patient-by-patient basis with obviously some common themes. We know that certain characteristics under the microscope scope make us much more worried about this spreading. But again, we're really it's it's a really exciting time to be in the field because there's as many questions as there are answered. Now you had asked about radiation treatment. There's certain subtypes of melanoma that are very sensitive to radiation and a, not melanoma, but there's a different type of a skin cancer called a Merkel cell cancer. Those are very, very sensitive to radiation treatment. So, but radiation treatment, if it's spread to, let's say, your liver, your lungs, sometimes we will use that as a modality, but it's not as common um, for the garden variety melanoma. So it sounds like you're kind of in uncharted territory. There, there must be some clinical trials that are out there to help you to figure out how you're going to develop algorithms for optimal treatment in this setting, yeah? Yeah, so there are a couple of clinical trials that are um, underway in Europe. Um, there's, those are close to completing, and they're using certain characteristics about whether or not the tumor is ulcerated, which is an aggressive feature, the depth and the amount of cancer that's in the lymph node. That's what they've used. Mm-hmm. And I would hope that I think they'll be done accruing within a year. And they're very similar trials that are also going on in the United States. So it's not uncommon for people to be approached to say, is this something that you would like to participate in? Now, for thick melanomas or ones where there's just a hair of cancer in those lymph nodes, um, there are a few centers that will be opening um, within the next few months, uh, a clinical trial for the United States to answer that very question. And so, you know, one of the things that I always like to hit home as a point on this show is how important clinical trials are to what we do. I mean, they simply help us to find those answers to important questions that help us to define optimal therapy for patients down the line. But many patients may feel like, well, I don't want to be the human guinea pig. How, how do you approach that? So when I talk to a patient about a trial, first of all, I assure them that I don't feel strongly one way or the other because then I shouldn't be offering them the trial. We have to have something called equipoise, which is we're really on the fence about this. And clinical trials aren't for every patient. You know, they're the they're brave when they sign up for these. But many of the clinical trials are designed, like I said, in a fashion that we don't know what the right thing to do is. And 
it's, I think, better for patients to be in these trials because we follow them very, very closely. And then the results go to help other people. And in my experience, when we explain to patients, they, as cancer patients, they're the most thankful giving people. And the reason why I became a, a surgical oncologist was because of the people that I have the pleasure to take care of. Mm -hmm. So, and this group of melanoma, if you just look at what we've done over the last 10 to 20 years, it's all been because the patients have allowed for this to happen. They were the brave souls to try a therapy that's never been tried before. And look what's happened. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that we are so grateful to patients who participate in clinical trials and and future patients are always grateful to patients who participate in clinical trials. And I think that your points are, are very well taken. So the first is, you know, really when we're asking these questions, it's because we truly do not know the answer. And so it doesn't matter whether you're randomized to one arm or the other. The clinical trial would not exist if there was a known answer and we knew that one arm was better than the other. And the other thing is that we also know that for the vast majority of patients, people who participate in clinical trials tend to do better than people who don't um, just by the fact that many clinical trials randomize patients to either standard of care, which is what we do today, versus what we think might be better. Um, and so on average, people people do better. But I, I agree with you 100% that um, it's really due to our patients that we've made all of the advances that we have. So we've talked a little bit about thick melanomas and intermediate grade melanomas. What about the thin melanomas? Let's say somebody picks up a cancer really early. It's less than a millimeter. What then? So those have the best prognosis. So over 90% of those patients really have nothing to worry about ever again. And that's what we would aim. If we had all of our druthers about us, if we had a choice for all of our patients, we'd want them to be the ones that came in with very, very thin ones. But again, I said about 90%, but there are still a fraction of patients who will either go on to have another melanoma or even though they had a thin melanoma that we didn't suspect would cause any trouble, it still does happen. And if one thinks about the majority of people are coming in actually with these thin melanomas, that it winds up being not infrequent um, and not to scare people. But that's why no matter what, we follow you for five years very, very closely, and then we follow you annually after that, not only with your, your surgeon, but also with your dermatologist, because again, we want to detect everything as early as we can when we have the most amount of options for our patients. What about their treatment, Kelly? I mean, is it just surgery for them that you just resect the primary and then that's it? Or are you doing something a little bit more just in case to try and prevent that 10% who will recur? So we don't do anything more than what we need to do. So for those patients, we remove the melanoma. And if they're thin and there's not any worrisome features, we don't even check the lymph nodes. We instruct all of our patients, just like patients are instructed to do breast self-exam, to look at the area where we've removed the melanoma and then to also feel the lymph nodes that are in the closest area to that. And so are there any predictors for who are going to be this 10% who recur? I mean, because 
you can imagine that patients think, great, I found this early, my surgeon took it out, got clear margins, chip shot, 90% chance that it's never going to bother me again. But then who's going to fall into that 10%? Like, are there, are there little factors that you look at that can predict that? So in the case of thin ones, some of the things, again, I mentioned ulceration. Um, if there's not a, a lot of uh, immune cells in the sample, those patients are at a little bit higher risk. There are certain um, gene changes, but those are really not well defined, and it's actually quite controversial whether or not we should be using those. They're, they're useful in things like breast cancer, and they have a special panel for that. But the word is uh, it's it's still quite controversial in melanoma whether or not we should be using these for everybody. It's like I said, it, it would be nice to tell people say, oh, you know, you're all done, and we can tell you with a hundred percent certainty. But we're not there right now. The patients that are at risk of getting new ones, though, because the same risk factors that caused you to get the first one didn't go away. Mm -hmm. So the people who were, you know, sun worshipers at, at young ages, there's about 10% of patients who have a family history where when you talk to them, it's just become very, very common in their family. And even if we can't tell them what gene it is, that just means that we're not smart enough to detect it yet. It doesn't mean that it's not there. And then the other group of patients um, would be people who were born with a lot of moles. Mm -hmm. Those patients for have about a 10% increased risk compared to the average person. And those patients should be followed. And then people who are fair skin, light eyed. But again, you know, there are other people who never thought they could have a melanoma. Probably the most famous patient was Bob Marley. Mm. Um, so he died of melanoma that was underneath his fingernail, and he was, he was you know, um, Jamaican. Dr. Kelly Olino is an assistant professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.